0: to you all. Um, you all have been really welcoming, and really inviting to me, and you've had me in your homes, and you've fed me, and uh, I'm just really glad to be a part of this body, and I just wanted to, to just take a moment and say thank you. So thank you. Um, so this is my first sermon, and a, as if I wasn't nervous enough already, my parents came to visit, so, uh, so no pressure. No pressure, right? We'll be, uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Um, that can be found on page 844 if you picked up a, uh, an ESV in the back. Um, this section in Mark has two different headings in it, and I'm going to stop in the middle of the second section, and I know that's confusing, um, but this, the, the verses we're going to look at is just it's a private conversation between Jesus and the 12 disciples, and I just wanted to focus in on that, on that private conversation this morning. So before we read it, let me pray, and, and we'll get going. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that we could gather this morning and uh, open your word together. Uh, So I pray that you would have us to to learn and to hear something new uh, from this section of Mark this morning. And so as we worship you and we open your word, we give you all the thanks and all the praise, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse number 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples uh, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of the word. So the question, who Jesus is, is at the forefront of our passage, and it It's at the forefront of the entire book of Mark. From the very first verse in the book of Mark, uh, the first verse says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. The question is right there. Who is Jesus? Why is he the Son of God? Why is this the beginning? Why is this the gospel? All these questions, that's what Mark begins with. So the first eight chapters, before we get to this section, that's the tension that's being built. Who is Jesus? Why is he here? And we see other examples of confusion like that. In chapter 6, Herod is confused. He says, I thought I killed John the Baptist, and and he explains that he had John the Baptist beheaded, but still, there's this following of people, and there's this guy preaching about repentance, and he's preaching about the kingdom. Is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? He doesn't know who Jesus is. So this question is all through the beginning of the book. Uh, And Herod's confusion, if if you'd had someone killed, and this is still going on, you might you might wonder, what, what could possibly be happening here? But, and so the, the confusion here is is understandable, and Jesus asked his disciples, it's a very simple question, who do people say that I am? It's a logical question, there are a lot of thoughts about him. Obviously, John the Baptist. A lot of people think he might just be John the Baptist raised from the dead, like Herod. Or maybe Elijah them being good Jews, they they know their prophets, they know the Old Testament, and Elijah was promised to them, right? Malachi says in chapter four, Elijah will come before the Messiah comes. So the people, the crowd, think, this is Elijah, maybe the Messiah is coming, right? Others, he's just a prophet, he's just someone speaking, he's some crazy guy with a big following, he's just a prophet. And we we do this today, don't they, When when we get asked the question, who is Jesus? We have a Maybe we just boil it down to some nice sayings. Jesus loves me. Do unto others. Right? These are nice sayings, and that's what we think of when we think of Jesus. They're very, it's a very incomplete picture. These sayings are true, right? They're very true things, but they're a terribly incomplete picture. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there, does he? he? He turns it on the disciples. He's like, okay, what do the people say now? You, you the twelve, you who know me, who've spent time with me, who do you say that I am? And you can almost imagine the situation, can't you? Uh, they they kind of look around and like, are we, are we going to say it? Is this, are we really going to give this answer? And Peter, Peter steps up, as, as he often does. He's the leader, he's the spokesman, right? Peter steps up and says, you're the Christ. Very simple, short statement, but what, what a profound answer right? You're the Christ. All of the Jews' expectations, all of their hopes, all of their their fears were bound up in this idea of the Messiah. We read in Daniel 7 this morning, they expected this figure clothed in white to come down and to defeat all their enemies, to kick Rome out of Israel and to set up an everlasting kingdom. That was what they wanted. They were expecting this son of Abraham, who would bless all the nations. They were expecting a son of David, a king to sit on the throne forever. That's what they were expecting. And so what joy and elation they must have felt when they finally got to say this, when they finally got confirmation, you're the Christ. We might not feel the same thing today. We, we didn't grow up with those same expectations and those same hopes. Many of us were raised in the church and we, we know who Jesus is. We've been taught who Jesus is for a long time. But their their joy is very short lived, isn't it? He says, "Don't tell anyone." <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, right? Don't tell anyone. Um, this this messianic secret is it's the subject of a lot of writing and a lot of debate among scholars. But many agree that uh, the reason Jesus does this is so that he can do things his way. They have these expectations, these hopes, and this section of mark comes right after he feeds the 4000 in the book of mark. In John's account of the same feeding, Jesus has to leave very quickly. He says the people were going to take him by force and make him king. Well, he is the king, isn't he? He's the Christ, he's the Messiah. So what's wrong with this? They have one set of expectations. And Jesus says, no, it's it's not quite going to be the way you think. It's like this is not how I become king. See, the way he becomes king is he goes to the cross. That's where Jesus is going eventually. Uh, I had a situation where I had a certain set of expectations um, that didn't come about. I was dating a young girl uh, in college. We were both in college. We went to different schools, and during the summer, we we had a big fight. And on the night that we were both heading back to our colleges, we weren't able to resolve this fight. So we left to go finish packing and to get ready to go, and I felt terrible. Can you imagine? You, you have an argument, and you just leave it hanging. You know, I need to go fix this. So I got some probably bad advice from my roommate at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it was 11 o'clock at night, and he said, just drive down to our house. It was about a 30-minute drive. Just drive down there. Do something romantic. You'll you'll get this situation resolved and you can start the new school year, both of you on, on the same page. So I, I drove down there, I, I stopped and picked up a flower along the way and as I'm driving I'm thinking, how, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna say? And I thought, I'll, I'll get a pebble, I'll throw the pebble at her window <laughs> and she'll, she'll look at her window and she'll see me with this flower and we'll talk and everything will be resolved. Well, it being 11 o'clock, 11.30, close to midnight by the time I got there, I couldn't find a pebble. It was too dark. <laughs> so I improvised. I thought, I'll just go knock on our window. I knew which window was hers. Couldn't quite reach it, so I've got to stand on my toes and reach and knock, and if you're a 20-year-old young woman, I don't know if you can imagine the terror at suddenly seeing a hand <laughs> knock on your window. I couldn't, I couldn't see in. Uh, but I heard her get up and leave and the lights shut off and I was just pacing back and forth in the yard going, what have I done? What am I going to do? And I thought, her father is going to come out. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's coming out. And sure sure enough, he came out and he said, like, Andrew, what are you doing here? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I had expected to come down and make this this romantic gesture and we would resolve this argument and we would be closer, and we will have grown through this situation. Uh, but what actually happened was terror and fright. Um, so the way that I wanted this situation to be resolved is not not how it happened. And this is what Jesus is telling the disciples. He's saying, your expectations, this joy, this elation that you have, it's going to come, but it's going to come through the cross. And in the next couple of verses, he, the next verse, actually, he says... Uh, He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which, again, we heard from Daniel 7, but the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he will suffer these things at the hands of the scribes and the chief priests and the elders and be killed. And the third day he'll rise again. There are three incredibly shocking things in that verse. First, that he'll suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. These were the religious leaders of the time. They're the ones who worked in the temple They're the ones who knew the scriptures the best. They knew the Old Testament. They're the ones that should be looking and seeking for the Messiah, seeking the Christ above anything else. And he's going to suffer at their hands? They're the reason? Before Jesus called the 12, these people were their religious leaders too, right? These are people that they should have trusted, should have respected. So wait, wait, wait. You're the Christ, but the people that should be looking for you, they're the cause of your pain and suffering? And second... That he's going to die? No, the, the Christ, is the, he's a warrior. He's a conqueror. And John in Revelation even talks about this. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What a powerful image. He is this warrior. He is a king, right? But John doesn't stop his image there. John says, behold, and then he turns and looks and there's a lamb standing as though he had been slain. I wonder if John had this conversation in mind when he was writing Revelation, if he thought, I wonder what Jesus says about himself. He says, yes, I am the son of man, but I'm going to suffer and die. Would have been very shocking to hear that he's going to die. And the third thing is that he'll be raised again. Now, we, we know that Jesus had raised people from the dead, right? We've Lazarus, the centurion's servants, a handful of others. They had, they had seen these, but Jesus was the one that did it. If Jesus is dead, who's going to raise Jesus from the dead? This is all, this is all confusing. This is all shocking, and it's a very short section, right? So they have this joy and elation, and then, no, their whole world has just been turned completely upside down, and you can kind of imagine the disciples standing. There, they've been muttering, "What are we going to say? Is he the Christ? Are we going to say that out loud this time?" Maybe they huddle up again, and go, what do, we, "What do we do? We don't know how to respond to this." And Peter reacts like I think many of us would react. Um, he says, "No, this this can't be right." Uh, he he had these expectations. He was very zealous. I think of it um, like this. Halloween was a couple of weeks ago. Many of you might have taken your your kids trick-or-treating or or you've been trick-or-treating before. You have all this candy. You get home and you sort the candy out. You're like, what am I going to eat first? What am I going to save? I don't even like the candy corn, so that's going to get thrown away. And the kids are excited about this. And the parents say, you can have two pieces tonight. (laughs) All right? But this is my candy. I want to eat all this candy. It's mine I want it this is what I expect I just I went I walked all over the place for it I had to talk to strange neighbors and say trick or treat this is what I want And the parents say no that's you don't see the whole picture the whole picture is you'll be sick if you eat this all you'll be sick tomorrow if you eat it all you're going to have two pieces a day you're going to have some tomorrow this is what Jesus does he says you don't see the whole picture you see that I'm supposed to be the king but You don't really understand what the Son of Man, what the Christ, what the Messiah is supposed to do, what he's supposed to be. And so perhaps Peter, wanting to help Jesus avoid some embarrassment, pulls him aside. And maybe Peter was just afraid. Maybe Peter was afraid of a time without Jesus, a time where Jesus wasn't there. So Peter pulls him aside, and we don't know what was said, but he rebukes him. That's a strong word, rebuke. We don't use that word a lot. It's a strong, strong word. He rebukes him. And so while Peter is that spokesman, um, Jesus' reply is, is very sharp. But it's not just directed at Peter. Yes, he calls Peter something in a second, but he turns and he looks and he sees his disciples before he answers Peter. So this is not just at Peter. This is collectively but he says, Get behind me, Satan. What an insult. This is the 12. These are the closest friends that Jesus has, the people who know the most, who trust him the most, who have followed him everywhere on his public ministry. And he calls Peter Satan. It's harsh, isn't it? And we've heard this before, haven't we? Get behind me, Satan. We read it in Matthew this morning from the temptation. The word, get behind me and be gone, Satan, in in Greek it's the same word, it's translated a little differently, we don't need to get into why, but it's the same word. So when you read it in Matthew and then you read it in Mark, you you can't miss the connection. So what's the temptation that Jesus is dealing with? Satan takes him up to a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. What's the temptation there? The temptation is, you can have it all. You can fulfill your mission. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You can be the son of man without all the messy parts. You can avoid the cross. That's the temptation there. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die, Peter says, no, that can't be it. So you don't need the cross. Go and make yourself king. Go Do what the crowd said. Go, go to Jerusalem. Make yourself king. Jesus says, no. I've heard this before. Derek Thomas is a pastor at First Presbyterian in Columbia, South Carolina. He gave a sermon on uh, the temptation. And in that sermon, he says, Peter steps on a raw nerve. Because Jesus knows the cross is coming, and he is trying to get it clearly through to his disciples. The cross is how I become king. Derek Thomas says that raw nerve, he still remembers that temptation. So it's no mistake that he compares the two conversations. Get behind me, Satan. Be gone, Satan. Jesus, I think, is remembering that conversation with the devil here. Because to deny the cross, to forget the cross, to misunderstand the way that Jesus becomes king is to put your mind on things of man. You're not putting your your mind on things of God. So where does this leave us today? Are we going to be like the disciples, kind of beleaguered, bewildered? What's going on? Or do we take a lesson from them? Because Peter acts, he acts foolishly, he acts childishly, and not very humbly, does he? He says, you're the Christ. You're the king. And then he says, no, not your way. <laughs> it's not, that's not a humble thing. Is it? So when we, when we approach Jesus, when we think about the cross, it has to be humble. We have to come to it humbly. So what keeps us humble? Sorry. I think repentance keeps us humble, doesn't it? When we, when we address our sin and we say this is our sin, The disciples had pledged to follow Jesus. They had pledged to follow their king. And when the king goes to the cross, where do we have to go? We have to go to the cross. And the cross means death, doesn't it? Ultimately, that's what it means. It means Jesus' literal death. Um, And some of us might be there. I doubt that in New England. We don't face that kind of persecution. But we prayed for Myanmar this morning. Some of them there will face that. Many others around the world will actually come to death. But that's what it means to follow him. But for us, that's maybe not what it means. For us, uh, maybe we have to die to sin or, or pick up our own cross. We hear that a lot. We That's Christianese, Christian language. What does it mean to die to sin, to die to our cross? Well, it's it's Repentance. C.S. Lewis, um, in Mere Christianity, writes this about repentance. He says, Now repentance is no fun at all. It's something harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we share in God's dying. So our picture of who Jesus is, it's completed only by the cross. For him to be king is to understand that he has to go to the cross. And for us to know the crucified king is to come to repentance. Let's pray. Father, um, we're humbled by this. And we can see ourselves put into the place of the disciples with with a misunderstanding of who you are. So will you please teach us more about who you are and teach us to come to repentance. Let us be humbled by the cross and your sacrifice for us and for our sin, because that is the reason for the cross, is that we sinned and you had to go there. So Father, we thank you and we love you for your sacrifice, and we trust you as our King and as our Savior. All these things we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.
1: Brothers and sisters, we have found that to know the Lord Jesus Christ is to have our eyes drawn to the cross of Christ, to see him as the one who became the sacrifice for those who could not save themselves. that means that the table that we come now to is a perfect complement to that word and that cross that we consider. Indeed, this table is one that proclaims that very same sacrifice. It proclaims the life of the Son of God, the only Lord Jesus Christ. That he laid down willingly as a sacrifice for those he is drawing to himself and to the Father. This is a table that proclaims that there is no communion with the Lord outside of Jesus Christ. Yet those who are brought near through this cross and through his gift and his sacrifice, those who have put their faith in what he has done for them, his death and his resurrection, we are brought near to sup and dine. To have fellowship and communion. See and receive the communion that He promises here at this table. If you have not yet done those things and joined yourself to His body, and trusted in His sacrifice, this table is not yet for you. He asks you to allow the elements to pass. And consider what it is to know the Lord, who points us in the direction of the cross if we would know him. We're going to read the words of institution as we find them together in 1 Corinthians. Paul reported this uh, as of utmost importance telling the people in Corinth that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we come to this table and proclaim the Lord's death, please join me in prayer. O gracious Lord, our God and Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, given knowingly and willingly to save lost sinners to yourself, to rescue us from the power and dominion wells the hearts of your beloved people, who even now as we come to this table will cause us to commune with you, lifting our hearts to feast and sup on Christ. And so help us, dear Father, by your Spirit, to look to the Son, help us to come near and to have communion with you, truly and rightly. We pray that you would do this and use this table to build us up and to keep us and cause us to persevere in you, we ask in your name. broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take me. Do this and remember. I said, this is my body broken for you. Take. This cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. Gracious King and righteous Lord, you who gave us your Son and did not withhold him, but yet gave him up for us, help us, O Lord, to come to you humbly. Help us to come to you repentantly. Keep us in that repentance, looking to Jesus, the sacrifice he has made. And so keep us and preserve us until that day when we will eat and drink together with you. In the kingdom of God, we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the blessings and also one of the responsibilities of being a part of the body of Christ is that we have a chance and are called to do exactly what Paul told the Galatians to do, and that is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of love. Now, we do that in one tangible way on the second Sunday of each month by collecting an offering that goes into the deacon's fund. Now, this fund is specifically used to help those in our congregation or in our community who are in need physically. And so the deacons will now come and collect uh, that deacon's offering. Our hymn of response today is number 252 from our Green Trinity hymnals When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Won't you stand together as we sing number 252.